Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to episode 36. I'm going to start this episode with a rather bold statement, which you may or may not agree with. Businesses that focus solely on profits and elevating shareholder interests above all other concerns, they're going to ultimately lag behind businesses that view their primary mission as enriching the lives of employees, customers, and communities. Hold on, I'm not done yet. Businesses with a more conscious focus on caring and loving cultures, those businesses that operate with a higher purpose, they can be more profitable because they believe that sustained profits are rooted in human flourishing. That's the premise behind a fascinating new book that will be the topic of today's show. The book is called The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. And it's co-authored by conscious capitalism pioneer Raj Sisodia and organizational innovation expert Michael J. Gelb. So what Raj and Michael argue is that the traditional business model that, for the most part, has exploited people and the planet since the dawn of the industrial age. You know, what most of us call business as usual, well, it's a broken system. It's done way too much damage to humanity, to our employees, to our families, to our communities, and even our environment. But there's a better way. So I ask you a question. Is love and goodness and caring and serving the needs of others, your employees first, your customers, and the communities around you. Are these things really compatible with profit? Raj Sisodia, the co-author of The Healing Organization, joins us today to answer that and so many other questions about healing organizations and how yours can be one too and a force for good in the world. Raj is the F.W. Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business and Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College. He is also co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism. And The Healing Organization is Raj's 11th book. You may recognize him from previous bestsellers like Everybody Matters with Bob Chapman and Firms of Endearment with David Wolf and Jag Chef. Raj, it's my honor to welcome you to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. I'm really delighted to be with you. How can I resist a podcast called Love in Action? <laughs> so before we dive into the book and the important work that you're doing, we always start with a gratitude moment. So what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's the opportunity that I have right now and the receptivity in the world to this message that business can be done with love and care and purpose and meaning and heart, you know. So uh, I get to, on most days, uh, talk to people and, uh, and touch people in a deep way and really get them to shift the trajectory of their own lives and their businesses. So that is the most satisfying thing I can imagine. It's fascinating because it's not just your work, it's your calling and uh, yeah. how awesome it is that you get to get up and do that every day. And I see the progression of your work throughout your books leading up to the healing organization. And let's talk about that because it's getting tons of attention I read it from front to back, and it's a real page turner, Raj. So when you say healing, what exactly do you mean? Well, so I define healing. First of all, we can look at the roots of that word, which mm -hmm. are things. One is wholeness, and the other is holy. Right? So wholeness, we human beings, you know, to be healed is to become whole. Right. right. Because there are parts of us that are not healthy. And we also suppressed parts of us. So, for example, the masculine-feminine divide. Right? We have suppressed the feminine in men and women. And we've suppressed women and we've suppressed feminine energy in society. Yeah. Right? Which is why we have this world. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and business is war and business is a jungle and it's Darwinian 
struggle for survival and you know we've just created this uh, you know this fear based scarcity based uh, you know uh, zero sum mindset or even a negative sum mindset so becoming whole is like becoming a whole human being means having the healthy masculine the healthy feminine having the elder energy and the child energy all of that right and then holy you know we are divine beings yeah we are not like any other creatures on this planet we are from this planet we are we don't come into this world we are from this world so we are part of nature and yet we are distinct in the sense that we are different we are the only creatures with imagination right? we are the only creatures with some kind of a moral compass we can choose our actions etc and we can create you know there's an expression in the uh, some of the uh, native cultures in south america which is the world is as you dream it we are capable of dreaming and then manifesting you know everything you look around in your room and in my room it's all existed inside somebody's mind before it existed in the physical plane right? so we human beings can do all of that so that's that dimension the way i thought about it is that is healing is about reducing suffering and elevating joy and promoting healthy growth right? because when you're not healed there's suffering right you have no joy and there's unhealthy kinds of growth as we see in businesses right which becomes cancerous so i said there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the world generally you know life is difficult in the best of times and therefore we face challenges all along the way and then we have our work and that actually adds to our burdens in many ways that certainly adds stress right and it adds uh, you know other forms of uh, of dysfunction it leads to physical and uh, emotional mental spiritual uh, suffering right and there's there's tons of uh, data on that uh, heart attack as i mentioned earlier heart attacks are higher on monday mornings there's a study that uh, jeffrey pepper did that 120,000 americans die every year from stress connected yeah. to work this uh, data coming out of china and japan where they're inventing new words for death from overwork an estimated almost uh, 18,000 chinese people die every day from overwork so the human cost of doing business is extremely high and i'm not even factoring in what happens to the families and the children mm. when parents are stressed out and burned out at work right what that does to multiple generations to come and none of that ever gets measured or factored in the largest costs are not on your as uh, balance sheet or your income statement right and there's a belief that this is inevitable that that's just the cost of doing business people have to die young and they have to suffer and they have to dread their you know, work week and i don't believe that i just don't buy that i think to the opposite we don't have to kill people to make money in fact the contrary the more people can be thriving and happy the better our business will be and thrive and so that's what we are on a mission to show and the way we're doing it in this book is through stories you know as you know we have 25 stories in the book and i've come to really understand and appreciate the power of stories i mean i experienced it uh, you know 14 years ago when i was writing films of endearment and the power of those stories to move me right to tears and in the course of writing this book we had many such experiences where we were moved to tears uh, just writing it you know and i think that's you know we have to, business has been all about the head right for too long and we have kind of ignored the heart and soul i think we've communicated up here we need to really communicate you know in a deeper way so i think we're trying to reach people at a deeper at a deeper level with this message and show them that this is possible so i think the first part of our book is how did we get here how did we create all this suffering using business which is inherently rooted in freedom and, and dignity for individuals and capitalism is supposed to be about that but yet how did we create a world in which there's so much stress and suffering thanks to connected to business and so many people are cynical and, and disengaged with it second part is the joy that is possible here are 25 companies that are doing these amazing beautiful things you know and, and we can copy those ideas tomorrow yeah uh, from each of those stories and the third part is the uh, the beckoning path i think we call it how do we how do we embark on this journey and for me it was a little personal as well i mean we can get into that if you like but i was told that if you want to write about healing you better work on your own healing mm. you can't write about something purely from an intellectual you know standpoint and be detached from the actual content of it it will not have real depth and and um, meaning to people right so three people who i really trust advised me that take time off be with yourself look inward understand your own suffering what you need to heal within right and then come back and write this book 
And that was, I have to say, the best advice I ever got in my life because I delayed the book by five months. And I told Michael, I, you know, I need to go on, the, on these you know, retreats and journeys, you know, silent retreat and Himalayan journey and uh, Ecuadorian rainforest in the Amazon, you know, 10-day journey there and, uh, and so forth. And those things turned out to be profound for me. So let's talk about one of those stories. I mean, they were extraordinary. And I don't use that word lightly. They were truly extraordinary. If you have a beating heart, these stories are going to captivate you and move you. And I'm going to pick one um, that uh, is, is a healing organization that really spoke to me. And that is the story of Grayston Bakery in Yonkers, New York, especially their open hiring policy. And here's their model. We don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies to hire people. So share your experiences there. What did you see? What's their business model? And talk to us about how they hire and retain their employees. Yeah. Yeah, so Grayson uh, Bakery was started by uh, a Zen master named Bernie Glassman. Um, fascinating, fascinating uh, human being who actually passed away as we were writing our book. We were kind of dedicated the book to him and Herb Kelleher, the uh, CEO of Southwest Airlines. Uh, so Bernie Glassman, deep humanist, uh, really cared about human suffering, is about bearing witness. You know, he used to take people to Germany and the Holocaust sites and so forth uh, to experience what, uh, try to experience what people went through. Because he said, when you bear witness, loving action will naturally arise. And you, so, you know, he, he cared deep about the homeless problem. And he would actually take people and they would spend seven days out there you know, being homeless on the streets with the other homeless people. And then out of that would come loving action. Right? And so his loving action was, he said, I want to give people a first chance. He said, there are tens of millions of people in our country who don't even get a first chance. Forget about second chance. Right? You're born in a ghetto and you have uh, terrible education, you're surrounded by guns and drugs and violence. You know, what opportunity are you really going to have? Right, to get on that uh, ladder or that rung. So he said, I want to give people a first chance. And what happens, people get caught up in the criminal justice system. And we have these draconian uh, drug laws and very, very harsh penalties. And there are 20 years of their lives suddenly thrown away before minor nonviolent you know, possession, etc. So there are countless stories like that. And the startling statistic there for me was that there are 17 million Americans who have some kind of criminal record. You have to check a box on an employment application that says, have you ever been there? And the same number that have a college degree, 70 million, right? huh. also have this challenging background. And for them, most doors get shut in their face. And so Bernie Gossman said, I want to give these people a first chance. So he created this business specifically and he said, what kind of business can I do that will allow people to come in with minimum background or no experience and we can train them quite easily and then give them, you know, get them started on their journey. This is not meant to be a lifelong uh, uh, career for them, or could be for some. So that was what he did, and they created Grayston Bakery. Um, and uh, the open hiring process basically says there's no interviews and no background checks. Right? We're just going to, there's a list, you put your name on it, we hire the next person. When there's a vacancy, we take the next person on the list, we train them for eight or nine months, and then we assign them to a role. Now, at that point, they do have to then make sure they're worthy of that and do the job. But even if not, they've actually been given some training and they've been given some respect and dignity and they can you know, hopefully find something else uh, as well. So that's what they've been doing. And it's been transformative, obviously, for the lives of people. We had one of their young uh, people at our conference who spoke beyond Drew. And he said, I'd been in jail three times, the last time for three years. And every time I came out, I'd look for jobs, spend months. Nobody was willing to hire me and I needed to eat. So I went back on the street corner and I did what I had to do and I got trapped again. And this time I found Grayson Bakery. And now, three years later, I don't know, five years later, you know, he says, I've got a little daughter, I've got an apartment. He's now a training supervisor. He makes $70,000 a year. You know, and he had tears in his eyes. He said, if it were not for this company, I would be dead or back in jail. And this is a common refrain. You know, people's lives are literally salvaged, rescued, and put on the right course by business. And again, we were very careful to say we only wanted to look at for-profit businesses because there are obviously lots of nonprofits that are doing work to help people. Yeah, We believe that ultimately the sustainable solution is for businesses to do this because we can't be creating a problem and a mess and then you know, leaving it up to nonprofits and the government to clean it up. 
Right? Let's not create these problems in the first place. Let's start with a healing orientation. And let's use business as a vehicle for caring and loving. I mean, I believe that business, we are, first of all, I believe that we human beings are put on, planet, on this planet to care for each other. You know, one of the uh, learnings I got in my uh, self-healing explorations was a vision where I saw in India, there's this uh, woman known as Amma. She's the hugging saint, she's called, and she travels all over the world. And people line up for hours you know, in the hot sun waiting for a hug. And she doesn't even speak English, so she doesn't even say anything. And all they get is this feeling of unconditional love, right? So people stand for hours in the hot sun, get a hug, and then they, you know, start crying and walk away, you know? So there's this hunger for, for love and, and unconditional love. And the vision that I got was a long line of people standing in line and this tiny little woman at the end. And the, the, the message I got along with that vision was that all these people could be hugging each other. They have what they need. We have what we need, right? We're here to take care of each other. And yet we are looking for all of that somewhere else, you know, third place or, the, you know, or through other experiences, etc. So we are here to take care of each other. And that's what gives us deepest satisfaction. The deepest source of human happiness is the sense of doing work that matters for others, right? Business is a way for us to care for each other at scale, right? I mean, I can care for X number of people but if I have a company, I can care for a thousand times that or more, right? So if we come at business with that energy, then I'm going to express myself and serve others and take care of others. Rather than I'm going to use others to serve myself. See, that's tyrannical. That's selfish. That's exploitative. And that's what's given business a bad name, deservedly so, because, you know, what did we do in the industrial age? What were the working conditions for our workers? What was happening in those steel mills in uh, you know, in Carnegie Steel, in Pittsburgh, where 10% of the people are dying every year on the job, right? I mean, we just treated people as replaceable, you know? I mean, we wouldn't even treat human, uh, animals that way, right? And yet we treated people that way. And so, uh, so I think that's the fundamental message. Business is fundamentally about us taking care of each other. Therefore, I believe it's fundamentally about healing. So that's what it means when you take care of each other, you help each other to heal. Yeah. And I say that there are two things that are hidden in the corporate closet. We've created an environment at work where there are two things that cannot be talked about. So one is, I call it unexpressed love. Human beings have a need to care. But most organizations suppress that because you're supposed to put on your mask and armor and go to battle and do your job, right? And, and be professional, which means don't ever you know, show weakness, which means show a sign of caring. So unexpressed love, I believe, is the uh, greatest untapped resource on this planet. The human capacity for love and care you know, is locked up, right? And organizations can amplify or depress our innate desire or capacity for caring, and most of them depress it, right? they reduce it. So unexpressed love on the one hand, and then silent suffering on the other hand. If you could put a thought bubble over everybody's head that you meet, all your colleagues, everybody, you know, it would be heartbreaking to know what people are dealing with on a daily basis. You know, life is full of challenges. Somebody has a mother dying of cancer. Somebody has you know, a father with uh, dementia. So a child with opioid addiction. Whatever. All kinds of things. Right? And yet we are supposed to again be, you know, people, as I say, are stoic and people are heroic. They just show up and they do their job and they carry all these burdens that would crush you. If we allow that suffering to be expressed, uh, to, for people to be vulnerable and to be able to say, you know, this is what's happening in my life. And we also allow that unexpressed love to be expressed. And I said, love that is not expressed is like a check that is never cashed. It doesn't do any good for anybody. We're walking around with these million-dollar checks in our pockets and nobody ever cashes them. <laughs> so I think those two things coming out of the corporate closet will then replace that suffering with joy. And people will do for each other. It's not that the CEO has to make everybody you know, happy and healthy. They just have to model this way of being and then give permission for people to do that. And then I think it spreads. You know, It's like a positive contagion that can spread in the organization. Mm. Wow. So speaking of hyper-masculinity, I found this interesting. You quote one of the sharks in the popular TV show Shark Tank. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say who he is, but listeners, you can draw your own conclusion. This very successful investor on Shark Tank, who's a role model for would-be entrepreneurs, he offered this advice, and you quote him. He says, business is war. I want to kill the competitors. I want to make their lives miserable. I want to steal their market share. 
I want them to fear me. And he adds, working 24 hours a day isn't enough anymore. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything to be successful. You may lose your wife. You may lose your dog. Your mother may hate you. None of these things matter. What matters is that you achieve success and become free. Free to do what? I mean, that it's almost unbelievable. I, I wouldn't believe that a human being would actually say that. Uh, but he did. And uh, first of all, why is this show called Shark Tank? Why is the idea of starting a business, right? The idea that you're being thrown into a shark tank, right? And there'll be a feeding frenzy and people will, t- you know, it's just the whole, the whole energy behind it is wrong, right? Uh, business, as I said, is a vehicle for serving. And, you know, in a free society, governments don't take care of us. We're supposed to take care of each other. needs, right? And, and, and we get to sense and, and create businesses to understand what people need and then fulfill those needs. But if you do it from a place of caring. See, we, there are two energies. So Adam Smith is considered the father of modern capitalism. Right? So his book, The Wealth of Nations, sort of taught us about the power of markets. Right? And he said, he was asking the question, why do some places prosper and others don't? And it had nothing to do with natural resources or work ethic. It had to do with freedom. Societies rooted in individual freedom became more prosperous because people could then follow their own dreams and passions and then create businesses and serve other people. And, and likewise, they would do the same and we would end up meeting each other's needs. So that's really, he said, people pursuing their own self-interest will make decisions that will ultimately rebound to the benefit of all. And that's a powerful message, right? And that became the foundational uh, logic for markets, the invisible hand hypothesis. But he also wrote another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 17 years prior. And that was about the human need to care. So we are self-interested creatures, but we also have this innate need to care without regard to self-interest. And a parent doesn't care for a child because of self-interest. You know, people don't go out there and volunteer for causes on the weekend because of self-interest. Yeah, it makes them feel good if you want to define that as self-interest. But yeah, they're not doing it for any tangible benefit to themselves. Right? We have a need to care. We are wired that way, right? And that gives us deep satisfaction and meaning. And that's true joy. That's real freedom. Mm. So what I, the way I phrase it is that capitalism had a mother and a father. They were both Adam Smith. He gave us the mother energy in fear of moral sentiments. He gave us the father energy in wealth of nations. But unfortunately, what did we do? We ignored and took for granted that mother energy. This is what we do in life, right? Most of us take that nurturing, caring, etc., for granted. And then we're out there striving to succeed and conquer and win in the world. Like our most, you know, I'm being a little gendered stereotype here, but like the way our fathers, I, mean, I come from India, which is a very feudal, you know, sort of uh, patriarchal culture, right? And that's what we're trying to do. So even girls are trying to be more like their father in a way. They're trying to succeed in the world today. But we've lost that, that I call it the mother energy or that feminine energy. And by the way, in some families, that may come from the father. Mm. The caring, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, nurturing, etc. We need that. Doesn't matter where where it comes from. Typically, it's more from the mother. So I think that's what we have lost sight of. And uh, this was one of my great realizations last year, as I started working with a coach for the first time. As part of my healing, somebody said, "Get a coach to understand your journey and your life." You know. So I started working with a coach. So by the way, all these people were women. Three people who told me to take time off. Right, and go on a, you know, my own healing where women I respect and admire. One of them is my co-author on a Shakti leadership, which is about feminine and masculine energy and leadership. One is Lynn Twist, started the Pachamama Alliance. Anyway, the coach, when she heard my trajectory of my, uh, my life and my work, she said, do you realize that you have been honoring your mother with your work for the last 15 years, 14 years of the time? Ever since you got on this path, you started with forms of endearment and then Conscious capitalism and everybody matters and Shakti and Hiri. All of this is really reflecting your, the ethos that your mother gave you, which is about unconditional love, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, nurturing, caring, etc. And that was a huge realization because I had spent 45 years trying to impress my father, trying to be more like him, but I'm not like him, right? Because he was all about the worldly and, and all about that. And, and, and my mother, meanwhile, had taught me all these things. And by bringing that energy into the world of business, that's when I started to not only feel personally satisfied, but have impact. Anything that has actually mattered to other people has come from that energy. Mm. I wrote all the strategy papers and I did all the other stuff before that. But this stuff really makes a difference. So I think that's, that's a big thing that we have been missing for millennia. 
you know, every societal institution has been run by men on a limited set of masculine values. You know, so strength, courage, focus, resilience, discipline, those are great, beautiful masculine values. But when you don't have the counterbalancing feminine, that becomes domination, aggression, excessive competition, winning at all costs, you know, what that quote that you just read embodied to me, right, is that hyper-masculine run amok. And that is not a formula for happiness and well-being for anybody. Those people die miserable and maybe they have a lot of money in the bank, okay? But they're going to die miserable and lonely, right? And they'll have caused a lot of devastation in the world along the way. So we need to bring that healthy feminine energy and we need to awaken it within all of us, right? As Carl Jung said, I was in Vienna, Austria. We also went, you know, Carl Jung, Freud. I mean, they're all from there, right? Every man has an inner woman. Every woman has an inner man. We need to have that healthy masculine and feminine together so become a whole human being. So as Martin Luther King said, we can be tough-minded and tender-hearted simultaneously. It's not choosing one or the other. See, in this country, we go bipolar. We go either one extreme or the other. It's all toughness or it's all love. No, we need both. These are not incompatible, right? We need to, we need to combine those things together. So I think that's ultimately the message of this book. Let's become whole as leaders. Let's heal ourselves, right? Heal those schisms within. Heal that wounded inner child. What causes people in life to inflict suffering on others? Go back to all the tyrants, etc. Go back and look at what happened to them as kids. What was their relationship with their father? What kind of, you know, all of that creates that wounded inner child, which then shows up later as violence and aggression. Right? How do we heal that wounded? How do we have a healthy inner child, which then gives us joy and uh, you know, and uh, creativity and passion, right, and fun? That comes from that healthy child energy. So we need the healthy child, the healthy elder, and then the masculine, healthy masculine, healthy feminine energy. All four energies need to come together. So I want to dive a little deeper on this because you've mentioned it quite a few times now, female energy, masculine energy. I get the healthy feminine self that we have to aspire to become, right? What does a healthy masculine self or how healthy masculine energy look like? Yeah, so that's the things, you know, these, again, some of stereotypes are strength, courage, focus, resilience, determination, order, structure, discipline, right? These are considered healthy masculine. Again, the language gets in the way. It's not that women aren't capable of those things, but those are typically have been emphasized, you know, by men and somehow resonate a little more perhaps on average. But they are considered the so-called masculine energies, right? It's the yin and the yang, that kind of thing. Um, so those are all the, and those are beautiful, healthy qualities. We need to cultivate those, right? So it's the father energy. What is a good father will give us? You know, all of those things. Uh, so those are, well, that's what we mean. And again, as I said, we didn't invent those words. Well, that's kind of how the general understanding of masculine feminine is. But the language is a little bit of a challenge. I mean, my own daughters, you know, somehow with that, well, you know, those things apply to everybody. So I, I know that, I know that. But that's how we talk about them. We're going to make sure we have all of them. So we don't, I mean, in our society, in our culture, anything that is feminine is considered weak and considered, uh, you know, call somebody unmanly when we say to a little boy, you know, be a man and don't cry. You know, when we use feminine words as a way to insult people, right? You will throw like a girl, you know, all those kinds of things, deeply ingrained in our cultures. But disrespect and disregard for the feminine. The fact is, those are the more deeply human values. And all the research that's coming out now, there's a wonderful book called The Athena Doctrine. With 60,000 interviews were done worldwide. 30,000 to ask people what is considered, what, do you, what, what traits are feminine, what are masculine? And 30,000 to ask people what are the qualities of great leaders? And then they correlated the data and they find a strong relationship between what are considered feminine qualities and what are considered the traits of great leaders today. Right? So and, and by the way, they also correlated with ethics and morality. Feminine values are much higher correlated and with happiness. Right? So these are the more deeply human qualities. These are actually what make us more human. Everything else, you know, we share with other, other species. So I think all of that to say, after millennia in which we've operated in one way, you know, we human beings are on a journey of consciousness, right? Awakening, evolving. And so if you look at the last three centuries, the, the uh, 19th century was about the end of slavery in the world. 20th was about the end of totalitarianism and dictatorships on a mass scale. And this century, we believe, will be about the end of the sidelining of the feminine, where finally, as the analogy goes, the bird of humanity has been flying with one wing tied behind its back, the feminine wing. And as a result, the masculine wing has had to get 
aggressive and violent, you know, to keep us afloat. But then you go around in circles. And this century is when we can unleash the feminine wing. And the bird of humanity can soar higher and go further and faster when that happens. I mean, the answers are all right here. The answers to all of our problems are simply elevate the feminine. We will start to see all of these challenges go away. The healthy feminine. And that doesn't just mean more women. There are plenty of women who are filled with patriarchal energy. Okay, they're not coming from a healthy feminine place. Right? Because they are creatures of the patriarchy as well. They are agents, foot soldiers of the patriarchy. You know, so we don't need that. That's not what we're talking about. That's very fascinating. You know, I, uh, I'm so glad that you stressed the importance of knowing that for our listeners, that uh, your book and all of the stories that you feature are for-profit organizations, because we can quickly assume that a healing organization is, is non-profit. Well, you know, we, we deliberately called it the organization, not corporation. So it's a healing organization, because there are plenty of non-profits that cause suffering as well. Okay, there are lots of non-profits that have noble purpose in the world, but they have toxic inner cultures. There's tremendous infighting and politics and jockeying position and whatnot, right? So just because you have a nonprofit doesn't mean everybody's blissfully happy and, uh, and, and fulfilled. Right? So this applies to any kind of organization. But I think for us, uh, limiting it to businesses was important because a lot of people assume that nonprofits are doing healing kind of work. That's why they exist. Right? So I think that that mindset is missing from the world of business. We think it definitely belongs there. Well, having said that, can any for-profit company become a healing organization? Absolutely. You have to have that intention. So you have to be, uh, so see, there's healing outward and healing inward, right? So you have to have a purpose that is actually helping customers and others you know, that your business serves heal, become better, right? So you don't sell them, get them hooked and addicted to things that are bad for them. I mean, you actually look to serve them in a way that serves their well-being, right? So it is a challenge, obviously, for a tobacco company, for example. But even there, the answer would be, let's figure out a way to give people, soothe their nerves and calm them without killing them. Are there ways that we can achieve the basic underlying need that this serves? You know? So definitely we can evolve towards that. And then internally, every business, you know, one of the books I wrote is Everybody Matters. And they say we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. Right? So they... Think about their internal purpose. It's really about how do they change and improve the lives of their own people, right? And their families and their children and their communities. And they've done that beautifully. Right? 108 companies. That was, my, in fact, the original inspiration for the healing organization was Barry Miller, Because Bob Chapman has bought 108 dying, struggling manufacturing businesses and turned them all around. He's never sold a single one. Same business, same location, same people, no layoffs. Business is thriving now. Why? Because they put people at the center and they treated them with respect and dignity and care. And they say everybody is somebody's precious child. They deserve to be treated with that love and care and, and other things that they did. And you know, ultimately had a massive positive impact on those communities, on those employees, on their children, on those families. And I asked Bob a couple of years ago, how he was doing and he said, oh, I'm looking at 10 to 12 acquisitions this year. <laughs> uh, and I said, Bob, you already have 108 companies, right? And he's about 74 maybe. And he's, you know, he's got all the money he's ever going to need. He's got jets, he's got homes, he's got 26 grandchildren. And I said, Bob, then the number of companies exceeds the number of grandchildren. Maybe that's enough. <laughs> it's like, why you keep doing this? Why don't you just relax and enjoy your life? And he said to me, Raj, I don't know how much time I have left. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money I made. I will be proud of the lives we touched. And I want to touch as many lives as I can before I die. And I said, Bob, you're not growing a business. You're spreading a healing ministry because you, have an you feel an obligation to grow, right? That there are people waiting for Bob Chapman to show up and, turn, and rescue their company and turn that business around, right? And do it in a humility. There are other companies that go out there and they take over businesses and they, they lay off the employees and you know, they cause havoc and devastation. In the book, we use 3G capital out of Brazil as a counter example. There's an empire building energy, right? How do we build empires in human history? By war, by killing, by conquest, to feed the ego of one person who wants to be called so-and-so the great, Alexander the Great, etc. But those empires ultimately collapse and all they leave behind is a legacy of incredible suffering. In the world of business, we have that too. The empires that are being built, that are acquiring businesses, laying off people, you know, putting cost controls, you know, they're harsh and they're cruel environments. They're not making life better. 
when 3G capital shows up, uh, you know, life gets bleak, life gets dark, life gets very harsh. When Bob Chapman shows up, the sun comes out, you know, there's hope, there's a future. That's what we want. We want to spread healing ministries. We don't want to grow empires. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation that I had with Bob. Um, if those listening are interested, I did feature him in an earlier episode. So go check that out, Bob Chapman. Raj, let's talk about if you're a a leader at any level of the organization, but especially uh, in the upper management, and you're listening to this and you're fully bought on to the healing organization. So let's play the coach. What's a good starting point? For the leader? Yes. There's a quote I love from James Baldwin that says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So the first thing the leader has to do is open their eyes and their mind and their heart and try to see what is the real story of people in their organization, right? What is actually happening? How, how are people doing? You know, how are they starting? What, you know, what is their life like, right? And one of the big blind spots in most companies and I think our first or second story is called the parable of the pothole, which is not recognizing that there's actually a caste system in most companies, that there are two distinct, at least there are many, but there are at least two distinct realities that are being experienced. One is by the salaried, professional, college-educated, full-time people. And then the other is the hourly paid, less than college-educated, right, and often part-time, but could be full-time people in the company. Right? And the, the, the difference between those two groups is extraordinary. And most companies put a lot of time and attention and resources towards the first group. They have um, executive development programs, they have coaching, they have all kinds of resources available for those people. And mostly those, you know, those people are relatively satisfied with that. But what's happening with the others? Their life is a daily struggle for survival. You know, 50% of Americans have less than $400 in the bank. And if they needed $2,000 in 30 days, wouldn't know where to go. So their life could be derailed at any moment through a small thing. 60% of American households are technically insolvent. 100 million Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That is 65% of the, the workforce, right? And somewhere in that month, they probably have to end up going to a payday lender and borrow at exorbitant rates because they have to pay bills and they're not getting their paycheck. You know, life is a, a real struggle. And so opening your mind and heart and understanding what is life like. There's a show on TV called uh, Undercover Boss, right? Which I like at one level because it forces the CEO to go and experience life at the front lines of their own business, right? And they put on a disguise and they pretend to be somebody and so forth. What I don't like about that show is at the end of that, all they do is they say, okay, Kevin, you need money for, uh, you know, your thing and I'm going to, you know, gonna, here's a check for 25000 They basically write checks and do things for those people that they met. Right? But they don't change the system within which there are thousands of others who are dealing with similar situations. Right? So again, we need to open our eyes to the suffering that is out there and then start to figure out how do we alleviate and heal that. And this book will give you plenty of examples and stories about how to do that. But you have to first acknowledge that that suffering exists. You didn't cause it, but you're not helping solve it because you're closing your mind to it because you're saying, you know, that's not my problem. It's not my job to worry about that. But in a way it is. You know, this is like a healthy, you know, I remember interviewing Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett. And Colleen said, you know, Herb is the dad and I'm the mom of this company, Southwest Airlines. Right? <laughs> this is how we ran the company, you know. So, yeah, the well-being of everybody should matter. Uh, that's a critical question to ask yourself. Do, does the well-being of your people matter to you? Now, there's research that shows that happy employees are more productive and therefore more profitable. Right? So some leaders will say, well, of course, because that makes me more money. Therefore, I want happiness. I said, well, in that case, it's not going to work because people will see through it. You need to do the right things for the right reasons. It's like asking somebody to marry you and she says, why? And you say, well, I read that married men live five years longer and they make 30% more money right, in their lifetime. That's not a good reason to marry. And likewise, treating people well and making sure that they're happy should be done because that is the right thing to do. That inherently is meaningful to you. Now, it will have positive business results. But that shouldn't be your primary motivation. Right? So I think, again, it starts with the leader looking inward, right? opening their minds and hearts to the suffering that's out there, and then also looking at their own, as I had to do last year, you know, what needs to be healed within you. Because the macrocosm is a reflection of the microcosm. That which is within will show up outside. You know, An unhealed leader will cause suffering on others. So we have to be on our own journey of healing as leaders. And then simultaneously be enabling healing in our work. As I said, it's 
is releasing that unexpressed love and that silent suffering, encouraging that suffering to be expressed and encouraging that love to be expressed. Awakening a sense of altruism in the organization. Right, right. We have a theme here in the podcast where we touch on love and fear. And I think that uh, uh, it, it may tie into how we have to go deep into ourselves and heal ourselves. So why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are managed and how people are treated in the workplace? You know, there's fear-based environments and fear is a really good motivator in the short term. So why is it that this is still happening when the evidence is so clear? You have 26, five, whatever that, how many, however many stories where the evidence is saying that the opposite of fear, care, love, compassion, leads to high performance, results, and profit. What's really going on here that's causing people to hang on to the power of fear and fear-based structures? Yeah. Well, I think it's the psyche of the leader, right? And there's a lot of conditioning. That, I mean, that's how they were taught. That's how they came up. That's how they succeeded. You know, they climbed the corporate ladder by being a certain way in that world. Right? The rules of success were different. And therefore, that's all they know. There's a way to think, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you look at a trapeze artist, right? if you're on a trapeze, you're not going to let go until there's another one that you see that you can latch on to, right? And so people are holding on to the old trapeze, and we're trying to give them a whole bunch of other trapezes to latch on to. So here's the safe. You can do that. But I think if, if the fundamental makeup of the leaders their level of consciousness is at that survival level. See, there are at least seven levels of consciousness, right? And most of our leaders are stuck at level three or four. It's all about success and survival and, you know, and uh, you know, achieving worldly kind of outcomes. So they're not into meaning and purpose and relationships and service to the world and, you know, legacy and all those kinds of things. We need leaders who are actually full-spectrum human beings who are motivated by those higher-level things in addition to making sure that things work efficiently and well. So I think the consciousness of the leaders is the biggest problem because our system has, it's like a Darwinian model. It's like we self-select. Our organizations select people who deliver numbers, right? And how do people deliver numbers? You know, by being ruthless, mm. right? by being heartless for the most part. In the short term, that's how people deliver numbers, right? You will lay off a bunch of people, your earnings will increase and your share price will go up and you'll get a big bonus and your stock options will be worth a lot more and, you know, that's, and you're out of there in two years anyway. So that's the system we've created. I mean, one of the most disturbing studies we found, the two actually that support this, is the uh, the incidence of sociopathic behavior in or psychopathic, you know, either similar terms, uh, in corporations is at a similar level to what it is in high security prisons. So about 20% of high security prison inmates and C-level or executive ranks have a psychological profile that fits that of a sociopath where you're willing to do anything to achieve what you need to achieve, right? Like Lombardi said, winning is not the, you know, winning is not the thing, it's the only thing. It's the only thing that matters is winning results, outcome. Right? So we've created a world, in, and so in the general population, it's about 1%, and then in prisons and in corporate executive boardrooms, it's 20%. So we have created a world in which those are the people who rise, but they leave behind a trail of suffering and bodies behind, right? And that's what we've rewarded, and we've therefore attracted people who only care about money and power because that's the only thing we hold out. The more at least successful you become, the more money and power you'll have as a leader. So we get people who only care about money and power. So that's, I think, our biggest challenge in making this transition is even though we have the human case and we always put the human case first and then the business case, even though our business case is very powerful. But we say it has, unless it touches you in your heart, Right? The rest of it doesn't matter. The business case actually can be harmful because it's going to tell you to do this for the wrong reasons. Pretend to do this. And therefore, you only make people more cynical over time. Right? So when all of that evidence is out there, but the fact that people resist that because this is what they know and that's not able, they're not able to grasp it or they don't care about it. Hmm. They don't care. <laughs> that guy from the shark tank, he doesn't care. Something has happened to him. He's a deeply wounded being. Something has happened to him where he had to put his humanity in a blind trust somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the stories you featured uh, is that of the founder of uh, Jaipur Rugs uh, in India, who's affectionately known as NKC. And this story just hit me to the core of my being. NKC believes that business leaders need to shed the fear and the inferiority complex 
that drives greed, control, unethical practices, and undue haste. And, and that unlearning fear is what liberates natural compassion and love. And I'm going to quote something he said. I want to get your comment on this. Leaders driven by love will bring sustainability and healing to the business as well as for themselves. When you come from a place of love, you will go deep and not be driven by external competition. Then you don't need to search for the market. It will find you. Wow. Yeah. Well, this story was very powerful, and we call it the power of innocence, I think, that chapter. And that's the phrase that he uses. He said, we need to bring innocence to business. Right? We've become all about using and exploiting and tricking and manipulating and you know, strategizing and all of those kinds of things. Can we go back to a sense of purity and innocence? He said, I want to serve these women who weave carpets. They are innocent. They've never harmed anybody. They've never asked for anything in their life. And they are the bottom of the social structure in India. They're considered untouchable. They're exploited by their, you know, they're, they're not cared for by their parents. And then they're exploited by their in-laws and, and by the contractors and everybody else. Their lives are sheer hell. He said, I want to serve them. Right? I want to serve the innocents. And he brings his own innocence to that. You know, he himself is a very simple being, right? By the way, that's one of the other things that I got in my uh, healing journeys. I got that the world of business needs four things in order to heal. And we've gotten far away from these things. We need love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. And think about it, the world of business is the opposite of those things. We don't operate from love, right? We don't have innocence. You know, we're all about guile and clever, you know, using it. We don't have simplicity. We create incredible complexity which is what got us into the last financial crisis, right? 34 trillion of wealth destroyed because of these derivatives and these mortgage-backed, whatever thing that nobody understood. And truth, what's our commitment to the truth? You know, we have trillions of dollars being spent on marketing, not in service of the truth, I would say, for the most part, right? It's all spin. Look at our world of politics, right? So if we can commit to love, innocence, simplicity, and truth, and by the way, that's an acronym called the list, right? Uh, the Healing Essentials. Uh, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. I think that's what, I mean, NKC, who's now known as the Gandhi of the carpet industry. So there are 40,000 women and counting whose lives have been turned around. Not only them, but their children and their children. Right. They're, they're illiterate women. We tell the story of Shanti. An illiterate woman who got connected to this company after decades of suffering, and now she has five children, and they all graduate from college someday. Mm. That's what we have. Right, and she herself has learned to, I mean, there's an illiterate woman who now has five children who will get through college because she found this company or this company found her. And it's having a multi-generational impact on that family. Mm. Now they are saying that we're going to heal our customers. We're going to show them when you buy a carpet, don't just go and buy a carpet and look for the lowest price. Figure out who made it and what their life is like. And they have a little barcode on the back and you can scan it and you can see a video of the family who made it. And they say, we are sending you a family's blessings. Because because of you buying this carpet, there'll be a family that will be lifted up. And that's the power of business. So he said, we're going to heal our customers. Because customers engage in mindless consumption. And they buy things and they have no meaning to them. And now you buy that carpet. Every time you look at it, you're going to think about that family. Right. And those children in college, right? And so that's, you know, in a, in a world of mindless consumption, we just came out of Black Friday and thanks, you know, this whole, it's like a frenzy of consumption. But let's have meaningful consumption and let's make sure that we're having a positive impact through that. Hmm. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. You are truly a captivating human being to talk with doing work that uh, the world needs more of. And uh, so we bring it home with two questions, Raj. Personally, what's, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our lis listeners to know from the heart? Hmm. Well, what's talking at my heart is when my daughter tells me that she can't sleep at night sometimes because she's so worried about the future. I mean, she's worried about climate change, of course. And that's climate anxiety is a condition now, but you know, in general, what have we done to the world? So that's really talking at my heart. And, and, and we, I think it's, not too, it's later than we realize you know, in the process, but it's not too late to make a difference. So I think I have this, as Martin Luther King said, the fierce urgency of now. You know, we just need to just relentlessly just keep trying and doing. I think we have the answers. I think we have what we need. We know what we need to do. And we just have to have the will and the desire and the intention to do it. So that's really what drives me and that's what gets me out of bed every day. And that's why I'm 
travel as much as I do and do all, you know, 100 talks a year and do all these books and everything else. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it is something that's worthy of every ounce of energy that I can put into it. And finally, you close this conversation your way with one final takeaway, one uh, final comment. What is it that you would like our listeners to absolutely walk away with here that's going to make a difference in their lives? I would say think about uh, your own, uh, the phrase we use, leader, heal thyself. Think about your own need for healing. You know, we have to remember you are your own most important stakeholder. Those of us who are purpose-driven, we become very, very externally focused. And we forget about ourselves. And as a result, we, you know, we have spiritual satisfaction because we're living a life of meaning and purpose, but we ignore our mental, emotional, physical, maybe even social well-being. So focus on yourself right, to make sure that you are healthy and well. Right? Take care of yourself. You are your most important stakeholder. Heal yourself and then bring that to the world. Right? So don't ignore yourself. I would say, and I had to learn that lesson because I got out of balance. And now I'm on that journey of, of continually working on my own healing mm. so that I can bring more of that wisdom to, uh, to others. Mm. Thank you for that. He is Raj Shasodia, and the book is called The Healing Organization. If people want to connect with you, Raj, how can they do that? Well, my website is rajshasodia.com, and there's a way there on, the, on there that you can connect. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and you know, uh, it's not hard to find. I'm at Babson College, so I'm on there. Right. Website as well. It's been truly an honor and a privilege. I appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Really enjoyed our conversation. Few conversations leave me in awe. This one was profound. So to recap, our quest as business leaders is to alleviate suffering and elevate joy. That's what a healing organization does. We should be about serving the needs and improving the lives of all our stakeholders, including our employees, customers, communities, while making a profit so that we could continue to grow and bring healing to the world. That's the healing organization, and yours can become one as well. Thanks for listening, Love and Action Nation. Did you like the episode? If so, Will you kindly leave us a rating and a review on the Apple Podcast? Let's spread this message of love and action across the world. Next week, I speak with Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. She's the author of the brand new book, Optimal Outcomes. Until then, don't forget, love and action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at Marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.